Scottish Mortgage seeks out lateral thinkers like academics, authors and experts in the industry to shape our investment ideas. Not the usual suspects and narrow mindset of financial analysts and investment industry commentators. That way, we continue to build a portfolio that reflects real-world progress, not financial world noise. Scottish Mortgage is managed by Bailey Gifford. A key information document is available by visiting baileygifford.com. As with any investment, capital is at risk. Hello, my name is John Schaefer and welcome to The Wealth Show from Situa. I'm here today with Martin Walker, Head of UK Equities at Invesco. Martin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Well, Martin, um, looking at your UK equity and, and your much larger UK op- UK opportunities funds, they were the top performers in the IA UK all company sector last year. Could you explain to me what decisions enabled you to beat the competition? Thanks, John. Well, look, honestly, when I come into the office each day, uh, I'm not looking to beat the competition. What motivates me is trying to do the very best job I can for my clients. Uh, competition with peers, what others are doing, that doesn't really enter into it. So. One of the very real advantages of working in Henley is that you don't get sucked into the into the city group think mm. mentality. Uh, so it allows you to invest on a much more individual basis. And maybe you could sort of draw down on on sort of actual stock decisions or, or investment decisions that um, I mean, obviously you're still trying to be be a benchmark here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And, and uh, the fund did well last year. Um, I'm pleased to gain. Uh, so I'm pleased to say that, that the gains were, were broadly spread across the portfolio. Uh, the best performing sector in the market last year was energy, and that, that was by a long way. Um, and yes, it helped the portfolio, which was overweight energy through its holdings in BP, Shell, uh, and most recently, Total Energies. Uh, but this, this was only a small part of the overall relative gains. Uh, it, it was pleasing that we were able to add value in eight out of 11 sectors in the market, and that's uh, stock selection in particular was strong. Uh, financials um, was an important area of strength. Uh, Hiscox, Standard Chartered, Prudential, uh, they were uh, good for the portfolio. Uh, industrials were also a very important uh, part of performance, um, probably most notably in the defence company, BAE Systems, uh, but also perhaps some of the less glamorous areas, uh, such as uh, Buffer Beating. Performance is a net of two things. It's the things that work and the things that don't work. And um, so a key part of my day job is trying to avoid value traps because that, 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 that detracts from the net number, if you like. And so, for example, exiting Vodafone in the first half of the year proved to be the right decision uh, as the stock fell uh, quite significantly in the second part of the year. What were the reasons behind that? Were there issues with the fundamentals that you could yeah, see? Yeah, I think, I mean, the story in Vodafone, the story in Vodafone was primarily around... Uh, the management's ambition to get the sales line to inflect through network investments. And because it's ultimately a network business, if you can drive more revenue across that, and indeed if you can increase margin, then that has quite a significant impact on profitability and cash flows. And that was, for a period of time, uh, we we backed management to, to execute on that. But it became increasingly clear uh, as uh, time moved on that that strategy wasn't working. And therefore, there was risk of a value trap situation. And, and indeed, that, that value trap situation has since crystallized. And we've seen the departure or the announced departure uh, of the chief executive, Nick Reid. Sure. And maybe we could drill down into a little bit more of your sell discipline. I mean, which, what other holdings did you drop last year? 
So towards the end of last year, or in the second half of last year, I became uh, increasingly more concerned about the state of the UK consumer, given the obvious pressures uh, on household cash flows. So, for example, uh, I sold my position in Barrett Development. Uh, as yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, clearly, as we've as we've seen, seen interest rates rise, uh, mortgage rates are almost double where they were two or three years ago. Uh, there's a good chance that will have an impact on the number of transactions in the housing market and indeed house prices. And yeah, clearly, that, 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 that is highly uncertain. Uh, and when I sold Barrett Development, I didn't think the shares were particularly overvalued, but there is nevertheless risk in that business model. So I decided to, to as, a, as a precaution uh, to sell the holding uh, and switch it into other areas. And the areas I switched into, for example, with, with, with Barrett's, uh, I, I, I increased my weighting in UK high street banks, uh, both NatWest and Lloyd's, uh, which are direct beneficiaries from a rising interest rate environment. Sure. I, are you pretty negative on householders in general or is it just Barrett Developments? I mean, I was speaking to another UK equity income manager recently that was, was saying that householders have been pretty much oversold and that there was a good opportunity there. Uh, it, it may be that it turns out have been the wrong decision to sell Barrett Development. What I've done here is uh, look to protect capital to the downside. Uh, when we modelled uh, the balance sheet performance at, 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 in a generic house builder, if you like, uh, what we saw was that uh, when uh, there's, a, there's a tipping point, for example, in house prices, uh, where beyond which things get significantly more negative to these businesses significantly more quickly. Uh, and it was that that was concerning us, and it was the protection of capital that was paramount here. Uh, it may be that if if there is little or no reaction in the housing market to a doubling of mortgage rates, uh, then this will prove to have been the wrong decision. But what we're looking here to, to do here is to protect capital and to avoid value traps. And we felt there was a very real risk. This was a value trap, but clearly the future. You know, I, I I can't. I don't have you know, perfect foresight of the future. Sure. I, I can only take precautions where I feel appropriate. One of your other questions there was, um, was am I negative on the consumer in general? I would say I'm cautious on the consumer. I've been surprised over the Christmas period how, how robust the consumer has been in a number of businesses. Uh, I think um, household savings will have helped the situation. Uh, I continue to remain cautious going forward. You know, clearly, uh, the outcome for the consumer will depend on where uh, the cost of living goes, but also where wages go from here. And clearly, uh, as we talk, we're in a period of time where there are a number of unions striking, uh, where the labour market's relatively tight and where we will see wage growth. But uh, again, there's a high degree of uncertainty here. So, for example, one of the moves I made last year was to sell uh, Marks & Spencer. And um, I switched that holding into Next and Tesco. Uh, and it's not that I don't believe that that M&S uh, has uh, the right strategy going forward. I, I think yeah, that they, they've got a good management team, but ultimately both Next and Tesco are higher margin businesses. And in an environment where you're concerned about top line sales performance, the higher your operating margin, the lower the operational gearing uh, and the more caution you are taking. So again, uh, that, that I, I, I still have exposure to the UK consumer I'm just being more defensive, if you like, as to where I take it. I, su- I suppose um, Tesco is slightly different because it's sort of at least buying essentials, but sort of next v 
MS, um, there's there's an interesting dichotomy there. I mean, what um, makes Next Margin so much better? Is it predominantly the online business there? Well, I think Next is a good executor of its business. Uh, so I think it's, I mean, that's no secret. You know, it, is, it is universally acknowledged, I think, that Next is an excellent retailer. And indeed, it probably has the highest margin of, of any mainstream retailer globally. And yeah, I'm obviously not including LVMH or other luxury goods, uh, other luxury goods um, um, uh, retailers. Uh, and it, it does so um, through you know, good, good stock turnover, good management, good, um, yeah, uh, good buying. Um, it, is, it is an efficient model. And as you point out, it has a big online business. Uh, MS also has a big online business and one that is growing significantly. And again, you know, there is a good chance going forwards that if I feel the danger has passed, that, that I would reinvest back into Marks & Spencer. That there is, um, uh, you know, I have no prejudices there at all. Um, but really, this was about managing risk within the portfolio in order to uh, protect clients from a significantly negative, or a potential significantly negative outcome. Hmm. Let's drill down into financials a bit. That's your top sector weight at the moment in the uh, UK to Opportunities Fund. Um, you know, which stocks are you most positive on? You mentioned um, UK high street banks, and do you think they're going to be sort of the top performers this year? I think that there's uh, a large degree of momentum behind these businesses this year. Uh, rising interest rates are positive for the profitability of the UK banks. Uh, and, I've, and over the past six months, I've been increasing the weighting. So you know, while, for example, as we just mentioned in, in Barrett Developments, I think that, 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 that model has challenges. And indeed, we are seeing earnings downgrades there. I would expect to see earnings upgrades uh, at NatWest, Lloyds and, and Barclays too. Um, I would also expect to see uh, increasing returns to shareholders because these businesses will be throwing off significant cash flows. And what about the insurers? They have different challenges. How do you feel about them? Yeah, so I'm, I'm overweight the insurance sector um, through selective exposure. Uh, Prudential I think is my largest um, uh, uh, life exposure uh, currently. Uh, it, it's got a significant and growing exposure into the Chinese and Hong Kong insurance market. Clearly, over the past uh, month or so, uh, we've seen um, we've seen uh, reopening uh, of the Chinese economy, and that's been very positive for Prudential share price. You know, clearly, uh, it, it, it may be uh, that the fundamentals are slower to come through, mm. but we think the business is well positioned for growth going forwards. And indeed, the shares you know, we, I, I invest with a strong value factor, um, and uh, yeah, that. The shares last year were were signalling a significant value opportunity. Elsewhere in the insurance sector, I have exposure to non-life insurers such as Hiscox. Um, I think yeah, that's a, a, in an attractive position. Uh, insurance premiums are strong in a number of their categories of business. Uh, this is partly as well because higher interest rates uh, globally have been driving capital out of that sector. So that you know, with, with with less free money, if you like, coming into the sector. That's allowed pricing to recover, uh, and indeed, that may be a multi-year trend. Sure. Um, do you believe more fundamentally that this is UK equities' sort of time to shine, essentially, after being pretty much unloved the last five to, to ten years or, or, or so, or, or, or is the sort of value rally a bit over overegged? Well, I think the um, is value overegged. I, I think it's it's perfectly normal 
for value to be a, a key factor in investment success. And it's only really since the end of the financial crisis in 2008 that it, that it hasn't been an important factor. And that's been in an era of falling interest rates and effectively free money. Now, I think that era has come to an end. Uh, we are back into a situation of positive nominal rates now. Uh, you know, rates have been going up around the world. And uh, as, yeah, and that, that, those rates effectively followed inflation uh, higher as well. I, you know, inflation will, will, will wax and wane over the next 10 years. Um, but on average, I would expect inflation to, to be higher over the next 10 years than it was over the previous 10 years to now. And what that means is that, 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 that for any given level of real economic growth, there's a higher level of nominal economic growth. Uh, and that makes, I think, value a more important factor, again, for investment success. And this isn't unusual. You know, if we look back uh, over decades, over you know, 80, 90 years, value has, uh, having value as a factor in your, investment, in your investment process has been a key determinant of success. Uh, and it's something that we've consistently applied. Uh, so I do believe that uh, our investment uh, process here is, is, is coming into its own again. Uh, having been you know, very successful in, in previous years. Uh, the past 10 years, however, performance in the fund looked look, look very good. Uh, the funds outperformed peers on a one, three, five, and 10-year view. Uh, and I guess my perspective is that uh, if I can be consistent in my investment strategy, then over time I can produce good performance for clients over the next 10 years. So I am very optimistic um, going forward. Um, uh, and as I said, particularly uh, approaching investing uh, with a strong uh, value factor bias within the portfolios. Sure. Um, BP and Shell still make up your top two holdings, um, which seems to have been the case for, for quite a while now. Uh, do you think oil majors are likely to generate continuing solid returns this year? It's a bit about, I think that's a very fair question, John, because clearly last year, as we mentioned earlier, this was a top performing sector. Um, and I think really what's important here is is to, to consider where the sector came from. I mean, the, 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 the sector was in a real um, there was a real slump in sentiment around the time of COVID. The oil price had sold off. Uh, there was a strong narrative running uh, that 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 oil demand was going to fall off quite quickly um, and wasn't going to recover. Uh, so the sector felt fairly friendless. So in part, the performance we saw last year is um, is merely a recovery from extremely oversold levels. And when we look at, uh, for example, the performance of the UK oil and gas sector and compare that to the US uh, oil and gas sector, um, we can we can see that over the past five years, total re- total returns in the UK from that from oil and gas still lag the US. By 53%. And so, yeah, there is a potential for a significant degree of catch up here. Elsewhere in the fund, you've got an allocation to Glencore. Um, I mean, we had reports out today that its copper production had fell by 12% in 2022, and that's been impacted by seemingly issues with the mine in uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, how much of a concern is that for you? Well, I think with, with any mining investment, the key is uh, to buy diversified exposure. Uh, so, I mean, overall, today's production report, I think, was fine from Glencore. There, there will always be issues. There will always be problems in mines and in, 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 a, in a large diversified business. Really, the story at Glencore over the past uh, year or two 
has been about strong performance uh, of the thermal coal business, uh, which has been uh, uh, which is reflected uh, rising energy prices elsewhere in the world, not least in in LNG and natural gas, and that's delivered or that is delivering super normal cash flows to Glencore shareholders. Now, in addition to that, volatile uh, commodity markets have also provided uh, significant uh, and profitable opportunity. Uh, in Glencore's marketing, uh, i.e. trading division. Uh, so that's also been producing really good returns of capital. But I think that the copper story that you mentioned there, I think that this is the broader point here, is that actually Glencore is a mixture of businesses. It has that marketing business. It, it has the thermal coal business, um, which uh, which the, the, the management have committed to run down and for the business to be, to be net zero carbon emissions by 2050. But also... You mentioned copper. It also has significant exposure to other base metals. And frankly, these are the metals of the future. This is what's going to build the decarbonized world. Well, well is, that, is that a bit of a worry then, that one, that one of the raw materials that is going to be sort of the future of, of electric vehicles is, is, is recognizing a fall? Well, I mean, I think that, that I, yeah, I would expect in that specific situation for engineering and geology to sort that problem out over time. But I think you raise a broader point here, which is that there is there has been limited investment in new capacity globally uh, in in metals such as copper. Now, it, it may be that that doesn't hit this year. It may not be next year. But at some point in the next decade, there is likely to be a significant shortage of copper production and the copper price is likely to move significantly higher. So... Um, yeah, a position um, in a business like Glencore, which um, clearly probably has a more volatile share price than, than many in the portfolio, is nevertheless worthwhile because at some point in the future, that supply shortage will bite versus demand. Uh, and again, in, in the same way that we're making super normal profits this year uh, out of thermal coal, we're likely to make super normal profits going forwards uh, at some point in, in the copper or the nickel or indeed the cobalt. Which, uh, the cobalt, by the way, is currently essential lithium-ion batteries which power electric vehicles. BAE is another one in your top 10. Was that high conviction position um, in the stock spurred on by sort of more recent geopolitical tensions? No, not really. I mean, I, I, the, 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 I, I've held BAE systems in some size for a period of time. Uh, but the business has been on an improving trend in terms of A, its reliability of cash flows and B, the returns, the returning capital employed that they make. Um, I think that the business is is, is, is better run now uh, than I've than I've seen it in my career, uh, and I, I think that has warranted a re-rating of the shares. And looking back historically, this business has traded and still does trade at a significant discount to its U.S. defence peers. Now, you mentioned recent events. Clearly, the war uh, between uh, Russia and, and Ukraine um, has heightened uh, global tensions um, and heightened. The need for, for example, this situation for um, continental Europe um, and, and indeed the UK to increase investment in its defence capability capabilities, uh, and that overall should benefit should benefit businesses like BAE Systems. But when we look globally, actually things look less stable. We're seeing an increasingly assertive China. We're seeing uh, the US respond to uh, the aforementioned assertive China. Uh, so against that backdrop probably the environment for defence spending uh, looks fairly benign. Uh, so I continue to hold the stock within the portfolios. And as I said, I think the valuation looks attractive still. 
Do you think it's possible to run a, a, a solid performing UK fund while applying ESG considerations? Obviously, you've got a couple of sort of sin stock names in there. Um, how do you approach ESG? So we consider ESG in every investment that we make. And um, the, the UK Opportunities Fund is not designated as an, as an ESG product, um, but it is relevant to me and it's relevant to how I invest. Um, I, I, and this will apply across my whole team too, in that what we're looking for here are um, considerations of, of, of opportunity and threat, and specifically the threat to the sustainability of the investment itself. And, and clearly, um, many of the principles of ESG have long been embedded in what we do here. Uh, and, it, and in particular, what I would say about Investco is our engagement with management uh, and our voting on governance issues. Now, governance is, is possibly the less glamorous end of ESG, but in our view, it is the foundation of all good decisions uh, on both environmental uh, and social issues. Uh, so we, we have a long and strong track record um, of, of, of taking this very seriously. How have you engaged with BP and Shell, for example, your top two holdings? Well, BP and Shell, so uh, as a business, we, um, we say in, in every meeting that we would have with BP and Shell, uh, there will, you know, we, we will discuss sustainability. Uh, we will discuss their strategy. We'll discuss, you know, for example, with BP, their strategy for their renewables business. Uh, we'll, and we'll talk about how that pertains to shareholders too. You know, what, what does it mean? What kind of returns? You know, how are you executing on this? What, you know, what, what data, what, what color can you show us in that regard? I mean, looking at uh, Morningstar's sustainability ratings, you've got possibly the lowest um, rating you can get, sort of one out of five stars for, for their sustainability rating. Do you think that's fair? Well, I think, I, I mean, any screening, um, any screening tool is a blunt appraisal um, of, of any outcome. Uh, you know, frankly, um, if, we, if we take Glencore uh, and their production of thermal coal, I mean, there's a really interesting um, uh, tension here between the environmental issues of producing coal, uh, but the societal need uh, to keep the lights on and to keep the heating going. Uh, and yeah, clearly the conflict in Europe has highlighted that the role of coal in, in power generation uh, is not yet dead. Uh, and yeah, for example, in Germany, we've seen you know, previously a previously unthinkable situation of the Green Party supporting uh, uh, coal-fired power stations. Uh, so I, I, I think just a tick-box approach to sustainability, which screening tools tend to use, uh, is very blunt. It doesn't tell the whole story, and it certainly doesn't tell the, the, the whole story in this situation. Because I can assure you that we take ESG seriously. As I say, this is well documented uh, within Invesco and uh, forms a part of most of our company interactions. What's your attitude at the moment to investing in private markets under the current sort of inflationary pressures? I appreciate it might not be a consideration for um, the UK Opportunities Fund, but as sort of as a house more broadly, how do you view it? Well, I think this is a really easy one to answer. I mean, I, I, I don't want to speak for Invesco as a house as a whole, but I will certainly speak for my department. The sure UK equities, be, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sure this would be applied frankly across the floor at Henley as well. So it's a really easy one to answer. We just don't do it. Right. So going back in time, the desk did have some involvement in investing in private markets. But, but that is, that, I can tell you that that is all very firmly in the past. Uh, that particular history won't be repeated or indeed rhymed. 
And I do appreciate you've, you've got that history. You've got that history with Mark Barnett and Neil Woodford. And obviously we had some controversy, but is there a risk of throwing the baby out with, with the bathwater by just having a, a zero policy on private assets? I don't think, I mean, I think it's more about uh, that, that yeah, there are, that there are people, there are people and institutions where investing in um, uh, in private markets is a core part of their expertise, and that's what their clients sign up for. I don't believe uh, that is what uh, our client base uh, has signed up for, uh, and uh, as a result, I will not do it. I see what you mean, but I mean, you were involved in the business when Mark Barnett was still running um, funds um, in your division. How, how did you approach it then? Well, my UK opportunities portfolio um, uh, had uh, zero exposure to um, to uh, private investments. Yes, but you were you were still involved in in the division, weren't you, at that time? Yeah, I was working. I, I was working within the team, but there were no um, uh, private investments in the portfolios controlled by myself. Good stuff. Well, Martin, thank you so much for joining me today. Okay, John. Thanks for that. Scottish Mortgage seeks out lateral thinkers like academics, authors and experts in the industry to shape our investment ideas. Not the usual suspects and narrow mindset of financial analysts and investment industry commentators. That way, we continue to build a portfolio that reflects real-world progress, not financial world noise. Scottish Mortgage is managed by Bailey Gifford. A key information document is available by visiting baileygifford.com. As with any investment, capital is at risk.